Welcome to Flippening, the first and original podcast for full-time, professional, and institutional crypto investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippening.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out just why this podcast is called Flippening. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Hey, this is Clay. We're just about to get into this conversation, but before we do that, I wanted to provide two announcements regarding Nomics.com, the company that produces and funds this podcast. Announcement number one is that the development of Nomics.com is about to kick into high gear. So heads up to the hundreds of folks who have made feature requests for the website. We hear you. We're grateful that you use the site and are invested enough to be making feature requests in the first place. To my knowledge, Someone on our team has responded to every single request that's been sent in. We hear you, and we're excited to announce that we recently hired a head of front-end development. His name is Tyler, and he's coming to us from Target.com, where he led, among other things, the creation and implementation of site-wide user tracking systems for one of the most heavily trafficked sites on the internet. Before that, I worked with Tyler at my previous company, And Tyler is hands down one of the best engineering leaders I know. So all of this is to say that many of your feature requests are about to get prioritized and executed. Great things are coming. Stay tuned. Announcement number two is that Nomics.com and the Nomics API have launched a deep data integration with IDEX. With over 220,000 total users, IDEX is the most popular decentralized exchange by volume and is consistently the number one Ethereum dApp in the world by daily users, volume, and transactions. It has more transactions in Bancor and all the ZeroX relayers. If you're listening to this, the partnership is live, so go to nomics.com, check it out, or check out our Twitter feed or blog or Telegram group at nomicstelegram.com to learn more about this partnership. And if you're an exchange that would like to partner with us, please go to contactnomics.com and drop us a line. Now to our regularly scheduled program. Today's conversation is with Sam McInville, who heads up Coinbase Custody. Coinbase Custody's clients include Polychain Capital, Multicoin Capital, who we've had on this podcast, by the way, Autonomous Partners, and Walden Bridge Capital. Their mission is to make digital currency investment accessible to every financial institution and hedge fund in the world. Before Sam was running Coinbase Custody, he was VP of Engineering at Apex Clearing Corporation. As a side note... I've been to several crypto conferences for institutional investors and heard a bunch of really boring conversations about custody. This is not one of them. In this episode, we discuss one, Sam's Wall Street background and experiences working with Apex Clearing, an equities custodian with customers like Betterment, Wealthfront, and Robinhood. Two, why custody in the traditional financial world is a solved problem and a commodity and why things are so much more difficult when it comes to crypto assets. Three, the spectrum of options and dimensions that exist for solving the institutional custody problem with regards to crypto assets. Four, Coinbase's regulatory posture. Five, why Coinbase custody has structured itself as a clearing broker dealer instead of a trust. Six, how Coinbase scales key management, key generation ceremonies, and thinks about security. Seven, insurance coverage of crypto assets at Coinbase. And eight, 
why Coinbase is going to great lengths to separate its various institutional offerings. Sam is absolutely on point throughout this entire interview, and this conversation results in a fantastic episode that will likely leave you with much to consider. I should mention that if you want to discuss these topics or this podcast episode, feel free to join us on our Telegram group at nomicstelegram.com. I should stop for a moment to tell you that this episode is made possible by the generous support of pandaanalytics.com. If investing is not your full-time job, but you still want to get into crypto and blockchain, what cryptocurrency should you consider when making an investment decision? One popular solution is a portfolio of crypto assets selected and rebalanced on a regular basis. I've had the opportunity to personally review what they're doing, and I like it a lot. Panda Analytics essentially has three tools. The first tool is a DIY crypto index fund creator where you fill in a bunch of variables and they create a customized indexing strategy for you that you execute. The second product is basically the same as their do-it-yourself index creator, except they execute the trades for you on an exchange of your choice. Their third product is a fully managed index fund. I've spent some time speaking to their CEO and they have my endorsement. If you want to learn more about their index fund and tools, please check the website at pandaanalytics.com. Okay, let's get this conversation started here. Without further ado, is part one of my conversation with Sam McInvale from Coinbase Custody. Sam, can you describe for us the journey and the path that led you to heading up Coinbase's custody initiative? I'm actually a late convert to the crypto space. I had to sort of have it beaten into me over some amount of time. I, I bought some Bitcoin in 2015, sold it soon thereafter, thinking it would be one of the, the better investments I've ever made and obviously continue to regret that to this day. But I actually come to the space from Wall Street. My first five years, I was a software engineer sort of right out of school, went to school for computer science, worked at a high-frequency proprietary hedge fund in Chicago. So wrote prop trading algorithms and systems for the first five years of my career and ended up running a small tech group there. Ultimately wound up running engineering and product at a equities custodian called Apex Clearing. Apex is notable because it is the tech stack and a lot of the pathway into financial markets for some really well-known equities, wealth management apps, Robinhood would be the biggest name, Betterment, Wealthfront, or some others, a group that's near and dear to my heart called M1 Finance. So we had a lot of fun servicing those groups. We also built product that scaled to Goldman, Prudential, Capital One, all of their retail wealth offerings as well. So the last two years at Apex, I ran product and biz dev there, actually launched a small prime brokerage too as, as part of that effort, which was fun and, and taught me a bunch. Sort of through the the fintech angle, the fintech clients that Apex served, I got introduced to Coinbase and luckily got to chat with Brian Armstrong, the CEO, and Jeremy, the chief product officer, right about the time they were thinking about custody last November. And great timing. Conversations just seemed to, to really, I think the way we were thinking about the space really lined up from the start. I'd had a little time to, to think about it and prep for those conversations. And the end result was uh, I was running Coinbase custody a couple months later. I'd like to back up and just understand a little bit about what you did at Apex and the customers. You mentioned a lot of heavy hitters. Was Apex like a custodial back office that served these customers? Could you just describe a little bit more about what all you did there or what that product was? Apex is effectively a Stripe 
for financial markets. So we used to just call it a sophisticated API for access to U.S. equity markets. Really, Apex is a custodial backend with a RESTful API on top. And I think the thing that I learned the most from Apex and that I, I carry a lot with me in the crypto space is that custody in the equities world, and I'll say equities world throughout the, the interview, I just mean more traditional finance, it's a complete commodity. In most cases, it's actually given away. It's not something anyone understands, knows about, cares about. Pretty much from the 1960s, it's just been a word that people occasionally use. People think in the equity space in terms of really prime brokers and or correspondent clearing firms. That's how most funds and brokerages like Robinhood get access to financial markets and store their customers' securities. So it's sort of funny that we have to talk about custody so much in the crypto space when it's really this abstract notion that I think most people don't even understand why or how it exists in the equities world. Moving to Coinbase a little bit, Coinbase has been doing custody from day one. What's different about what you're doing, you know, with respect to everything else that Coinbase is doing, you know, holding customers funds for what, five years now, four years? Six years now, actually. Our, our six-year anniversary was just a few weeks ago. Wow. Yeah, pretty fun. So there's a couple key differences. Ultimately, Coinbase custody is an evolution and an iteration of everything Coinbase has learned about securely storing crypto assets over the past six years. And one of the things that's cool is we've had a really large target on our back throughout that time. So we've been forced to, for the most part, be best in class to avoid any substantial breaches. And, and Coinbase is very proud that on the retail side, no funds in our vault has ever been lost. So what we did for custody was take all of those learnings, all of that sort of institutional knowledge we've built up and, and iterated and built a new version of it that is Coinbase custody. Specifically, the biggest advantage Coinbase custody brings is it's built for institutions. And what I mean by that is it starts off, everything is segregated. So if you are a fund and you have a Coinbase custody account, you will get your own sort of asset by asset address that you can use to deposit your funds. And obviously we'll control the private keys for those addresses in our cold storage. Beyond that, it's really meant to be auditable in a way that I think a lot of our previous iterations of cold storage were not. So from, sure, we'll talk more about the process in a bit, but from key gen to the way we actually reconstitute private key material, we expect third-party auditors to be a part of all of those steps so that we can provide the visibility and the comfort needed to really large institutions. I was at Consensus this year, and I heard a couple people talking, and they were just scratching their heads about the custody issue because we hear over and over and over again that we need good custodial solutions before institutional money can enter the space. And the conversation that I was overhearing was in essence, like, what's wrong? You know, Coinbase has a vault and it's never been hacked before and institutions can sign up for it and place funds in that vault. What were those folks missing? What's the perspective that makes sense of the scope and the importance of this problem? It's a good question. And I think generally this idea that custody is what's stopping institutional money from coming in is a bit of red herring. I'll come back to that in a second. But what's primarily missing from just leveraging Coinbase Vault is a couple things. One, it's fairly limited in how it allows you to interact with it. So it's great at eliminating some insider threats, but not all. And certainly as you have a growing organization where you might need five or 10 different 
individuals to interact with those funds. Vault is not meant for that. It's, it's really meant for a single user's holdings. Beyond that, I think the regulation or how that product is regulated is key. Also, it's auditability. So again, if you're leveraging Vault, what are you going to show to your fund administrator, to your fund auditor, even to your LPs to prove to them that their assets are safe and that you're accounting for them in the proper way? We have one customer that we're, we're really excited about, and they were telling us the way that they actually did this was they literally would show their fund administrator, they would open up the Coinbase app on their phone and show them the vault. Every quarter, that's what they did. Clearly, that the fund administrator is not loving that as the solution, right? So I think it's upgrading the auditability, the reporting, the financial auditing of these platforms is pretty key. Let's maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about your philosophy on custody and the range of options that exist. I've heard Ledger speak about this. They have an approach. I was at another event for institutional investors, and there was a company there that decided to approach this problem by simply storing private keys for people. So it was kind of agnostic to what the actual tokens were. It was really about sort of safely and and in a sort of institutional kind of way in a manner that's compatible with how institutions work. They were storing private keys for people. What do you think the spectrum of options are and what are the different variables within that spectrum? Or I guess as you sort of, you know, map the custodial landscape, what are some of the different dimensions that exist? I love this question. There are a bunch of different dimensions, and there's maybe three or four that I'll key on. First thing I'll say is I'm really happy to the end goal of putting this custody issue for the crypto asset class to bed. I'm really happy to see so many different approaches and groups tackling this problem. We have our own view on how the world's going to shake out, but certainly we don't think one view is going to win. I think multiple views will be right. And it's good that there's so many different trade-offs and alternatives that are coming online in the market right now. So I think that's a net win for this space. The two obvious dimensions for just evaluating a custody product, a crypto custody product, I should say, are first security and asset selection. The good news is that most of the names you just mentioned, most of the names you've heard of are using fairly conventional, fairly well-known means of storing crypto assets. Typically, this is going to be cold storage, some sort of air gap solution, probably leveraging some HSMs typically leveraging time locks, ways that folks cannot quickly move these assets. And those are time-tested techniques. We know them to work very well. And typically when you hear about crypto hacks, right, you're, you're hearing about exchanges, you're hearing about hot wallets, you're not hearing cold storage systems get hacked. So, so that's great. And I think there's just degrees to evaluate these groups across the security landscape. Certainly there will be more degrees forthcoming. The second is asset selection, and, and this is a tough one. Some groups are going the multi-sig approach, and that means that multi-sig needs to be implemented natively on the chain for them to offer a multi-sig wallet for that asset. We take a different approach, which is sort of more similar to just storing the private key, splitting up into a bunch of different pieces. This allows us to be a little bit more blockchain agnostic. But asset selection also is a function of your regulatory posture. That's, that's one of the dimensions I'll come to in a second. How are you dealing with privacy coins if you're able to from an AML perspective? What about the security versus non-security issue? Those come into play quite a bit when it comes to asset selection. And I think if I was a fund, ultimately, I, I wouldn't want to have to pick multiple custodians or I wouldn't want to have to self-custody the bulk of my assets because my custodian doesn't support them. So I think that will be a, a really key dimension here probably in the next six to nine months as a lot of these custody offerings come online and then and then buy for market position. 
The two that are maybe not quite as obvious, but in my mind, more important are going to be first versus third party. So are you holding the keys yourself purely and a first party offering, or is your custodian holding all of the keys themselves? And that's third party. Coinbase custody takes the view that institutional custody needs to be solely third party. And that's what our offering is today. It is just third party. We have the option to pivot and we can actually share some private key material with our clients. So we could be somewhere in between if there was a second party or a one and a half party custody. We have that option available to us. But our view is from a fiduciary perspective, from a more traditional financial perspective, what Wall Street is accustomed to is third-party custodianship. That's how every custodian works in the equities world. So we think that's going to be a little more comfortable to most groups. I love that a bunch of groups are taking the first-party approach, and I think that will resonate with a bunch of businesses. Ultimately, we find ourselves right now on the third-party end of the spectrum. The last piece of the spectrum is regulatory posture. So if and then if, how is your platform regulated? There's a bunch of different offerings. Obviously, if you're first party, you're more of a tech provider to the fund or the institution that's holding crypto. So in that case, you might be unregulated. If you're third party, you're almost in all cases going to be regulated so that you can service a broader client base, but you don't have to be. And I think it'll be interesting to see if there are some groups that that take that approach. How would you describe Coinbase Custody's regulatory posture? Our view is that I think in line with our strategy, we want to be the most trusted. One of the ways that we're approaching that is by being the most regulatory compliant and having an open dialogue with regulators such that we can bring those insights and those dialogues back to our customers and help them make the right decisions for where and how they're storing their assets. The way Coinbase Custody is going to market, we are partnering with a clearing broker dealer. So this puts us squarely under the SEC and FINRA regulatory regime. This is a challenge because there's not many, I actually don't think there's any clearing broker dealers that are custodying crypto today in a third party manner. So we're trailblazing in a lot of ways and that's sometimes a challenge. It's also an opportunity. It gives us a chance to really educate the regulators and also I think have really deep insight into where they're thinking and and where the world's going to go, which ultimately we hope will benefit our clients. And there's so much to dig into here just on the topic of custody. Let's just start off with what you were speaking about, you know, with regards to your broker dealer. So why would a custody solution partner with a broker dealer? So the reality is in what's called finance 1.0, you're mostly almost everyone interacts as a broker dealer and interacts with broker dealers. I would say that is just the way most finance 1.0 interactions happen. Even if you're, you know, a hedge fund, you're an LLC, maybe you're an RIA, your prime broker is a broker dealer. And they're probably on the back end interfacing with a custodian that is a clearing broker dealer. So I think that is just the most common framework by which most financial institutions work. And one of our hypotheses is the more sort of familiar we are to traditional financial institutions, the easier it will be for them to invest in the crypto asset space. It's obviously a big enough hurdle to invest in crypto assets if you're a more traditional asset manager. So the more we can look and feel familiar with them, that's just less friction sort of that they need to overcome to enter the space. I think maybe though the most interesting reason why we chose to go the broker-dealer route is the SEC ultimately is going to have final say on most of these assets. Many crypto assets, if not the vast majority of them, will be securities. And that's going to fall very squarely under the SEC's regulatory control. And so we just we think that's the right place to be longer term. What I actually just heard you directly say is that 
it's kind of a, a novel and new approach that's very particular to this crypto asset class to have a custodian that isn't a broker dealer that normally custody and broker dealership is these things are bundled together and it's actually odd that they're not in crypto. Would, would you say that that's true? I think that's absolutely the case. And it's because our ecosystem and in particular the, the crypto asset class is just so nascent that we're having to start with these foundational building blocks that again in traditional finance are taken for granted. There's a reason no one talks about custody. They only talk in terms of brokerage or prime brokerage really because we've abstracted custody away. Well, we're starting over from scratch. And so we've got to build base layers. So right now, custody is deposit withdrawal. It is safekeeping of crypto assets. Sooner or later, we'll have sort of solved that piece of the puzzle and we can build another block on top of it, which might provide margin finance, crypto loan, things like that. These are the more traditional financial services you might pull out of a prime broker. So I expect to see that evolution in the space sort of get built up over time, but we're, we're still a good ways away from it. Comparing Coinbase Custody to other solutions that exist right now that aren't, you know, broker dealers or clearing broker dealers, like what can you guys do because you have this partnership? What's a feature of your product that isn't present with competitors that don't have a broker dealer status? There's a significant percentage of our listeners that are purely crypto native and they happen to come into a lot of wealth, <laughs> but they don't really understand the traditional financial space. So they probably know what a broker dealer is. They have no idea why a broker dealer would be partnered with a custody solution. Like is someone going to call the broker dealer and actually buy crypto assets that are then directly custodied with you guys? Or like, what does that actually bring? Like, what are the net new features that you guys get because of this relationship? Yeah, so ultimately, all of this sort of stems from the 1940s Advisor Act, which says if you are a registered advisor, I should say, then you have to custody your funds or securities with a, quote, qualified custodian. And there's a bunch of different ways an entity can become a qualified custodian. One is through a state trust, and that's been the most popular route to date for various crypto custody offerings. Another is through a clearing broker dealer, and there are others as well. Oh, got it. Okay. The clearing broker dealer route we believe is interesting. In the short term, you know, what can we offer versus a state trust? There's not much difference. If you're literally just safekeeping, just sort of depositing, and then subsequently withdrawing various crypto assets that you're holding, being a trust versus being a clearing broker dealer, there's small but not really material differences. One sort of obvious one is civic protection. So for crypto assets that are deemed to be securities, you can get civic protection for those in a broker dealer that you can't in a trust. Longer term, though, as we think more crypto assets come online and are qualified as securities or viewed as securities by the SEC. There's many more things that a clearing broker dealer can do since that's just the predominant regulatory or entity structure maybe that most securities firms take. So a couple examples there would be margin finance. So if you want to use some securities you're holding as collateral to take out a loan that you can then use to buy more or do something else with, that's a very common broker dealer practice. Securities loan is another common one. So if we wanted to, let's say, take a bunch of the Bitcoin that is stored in Coinbase custody and loan that out to short sellers, obviously to make a return on that and then likely share back with our customers who actually own that Bitcoin, that's something you can only do out of a clearing broker dealer. In the short term, there might not be a huge difference, but when it comes to the long-term product roadmap available to you, there's just a lot more space on that roadmap because of the status. Yeah, that's our view. And then similarly, if we're mostly interacting with either broker dealers or firms that are used to interacting with broker dealers, we think we'll just be a more familiar structure to them. You said something I think is 
really interesting and speaks well to how you're thinking about solving problems and scaling the technologies available to you or the processes available to you. And that is that rather than going the multi-sig route that you know might be native to a given blockchain, you guys have decided to go with a single private key, but you still have a lot of those safeguards in place. Can you talk about your approach to private keys? I can talk to it broadly. Our approach is to, I mean, the simplest terms, like the technology or the process that we do is we take a private key and we split it up into a bunch of different pieces using Shamir secret sharing, specifically so that we can have a consensus mechanism that is required to reconstitute or, or bring that private key back together. Consensus is, again, it's one of those sort of time-tested techniques that is really necessary to securely store these assets. And I think the difference between multi-sig and Shamir secret sharing to just split up your key into a bunch of different pieces is where does that consensus happen? Is that consensus actually enforced at the blockchain level or is it enforced outside of that? And we take the latter approach, the theory being there that we have a more singular cold storage infrastructure that can scale to pretty much all blockchains. I mean, ultimately, you could just give us a blob of data we could split that up into a bunch of different pieces and store it. So you had mentioned a group earlier that was just sort of securely storing private keys on others' behalf. We could do the same thing, actually. In this case, we actually generate the, the private keys and the addresses ourselves. We take a private key. We generate that offline in an air-gapped facility. That's pretty cool. I can give you some details about that. That private key is split up into a bunch of different pieces. Those pieces, eventually, a bunch of different things happen to them, various levels of encryption and so on. They find their way onto physical media and are distributed in vaults around the country, soon to be around the globe. When we need to reconstitute a private key to actually sign a transaction to send assets out, there's a bunch of different groups of people that are all involved, and they're all sort of exclusive of each other. That makes So if you're a member of one group, you can't be a member of another group. So there's a group that has access to the vaults that can actually go into the vaults and pull out the private key shards. There's groups that can decrypt those shards to get back to the actual private key themselves. Then there's actually the group that talks to the client and authenticates them in a bunch of different ways. And all of those people have to sort of come together to reconstitute the full private key and, and thus sign a transaction. But they're, they're split up, they're geographically diverse, the groups don't overlap so that there's no single point of failure. And the reality is you can't really talk to one person and know enough about the overall mechanism to figure out, okay, what other people that you didn't have to go affect? to actually bring that private key back to completion to sign a transaction. It also seems to me, as a someone watching this space, that the multi-sig technology is often less mature than the single-sig technology, if you will. I'm thinking about the parity hack and other vulnerabilities that I've seen over time that generally the most tested and more mature you know, sort of way to sign a transaction is with one single private key. So it seems to me like the benefits of this are not only scalability, but also security. We think so. Ultimately, cold storage is a combination of technology and process. I think oftentimes anything that's multi-sig can sort of lull you into a sense of security. There's lots of various techniques for securing private keys that can lull you into a sense of security that if you don't then have the right process around that, they're just ineffectual. And I think multi-sig is, is a good example of that, whether that's multi-sig implemented at the blockchain level or some sort of M of N consensus model that you achieve through Shamir secret sharing. You still have to have the right process in place to bring the different pieces, either the different keys or the different key pieces together. 
And honestly, it might be more the process side that we've honed and learned and perfected over the last six years than the technology side. There, I think there are some really cool tricks that we leverage on the tech side that do differentiate us from our competitors. But the reality is it's not that different from what a lot of other folks are doing. It's the process around it. And I think a lot of the the way we generate those keys, the way we store them, sort of actually the physical nature of the process, the very manual nature of the process, that's really unique and, and something we're very, very proud of. I know Zappo has done a bunch of PR around their facilities inside of mountains and stuff. If Coinbase were to do similar PR, what might people see in terms of the physical locations? Would they also see bunkers and armed guards or, or would it be something different? What can you share with us about the physical aspects of your off-blockchain process? First off, let me say I love Zappo. And I think that they really set the stage and the bar high for any subsequent crypto custody offering and still sort of love their offering and their devotion to Bitcoin to this day. I think they're a really unique player and trailblazed a bunch for a lot of us to follow. What I can say is that our vaults are, are not quite the same. We're not actually in mountains, at least not yet, unfortunately, although maybe maybe one day we will be. We're typically in industrial grade vaults. And so what I mean by that is, is this would be a vault where if you could happen to, you know, look at the customer next to you, which you can't, they would probably be storing gold bullion or precious gems, something like that. And these are vaults that have been around, at least, you know, the parent companies of them have typically been around for hundreds of years, storing these types of assets on behalf of their customers who could be usually not high net worth, but could be high net worth, banks, any institution that might be holding, you know, precious metals, something like that. They're obviously distributed right now in the U.S. And, and soon to be globally. We think that brings a lot of peace of mind to our customers. Ultimately, the coolest part, I think, of our process is our key gen ceremony. So we have a mobile skiff environment. So what that is, is it's a Faraday cage, effectively, that we almost have on wheels, although it's 400 pounds because the material to actually make this work is pretty heavy. So we have a Faraday cage that we set up. And then inside of this, it's I joke, it's almost like something out of Breaking Bad, the extent to, it's kind of like a physics experiment, really, is what's going on in there. We have quantum safe random number generators, which are literally, if you've ever heard of the the double slit experiment, the photon, the famous photon experiment, where you fire photons, and they go through one slit or the other, we're doing that in boxes. And you count, you know, ratios of one photon to another as a source of entropy into your random number generation. And I have so much fun geeking out on this with our security team, because they go so deep on all this, even to, you know, the various brands of hardware that we might be using for various steps in that process. There's dice involved as well. I'd say more so just for fun than anything else. I think we've got plenty of entropy. But if you imagine this mobile skiff environment that's in undisclosed locations with a, a bunch of Coinbase security hackers inside running physics experiments, the end result is private key shards that end up in our physical vaults around the country. It's pretty fun. I'm almost picturing like a, what is it, a Rube Goldberg machine that generates entropy. It's honestly kind of like that. And, you know, our view is part of that is actually on purpose. You know, we want to hold ourselves to a really high bar. I mean, it's all on purpose, actually. It's not just for fun. We think the bar needs to be really high for securing these assets. And you might say, okay, well, do you really need 99 rolls of a die if you have all of these other sources of entropy? And the reality is maybe not. But there's not too many organizations in the world that have the knowledge and the resources to bear on this problem that Coinbase does. So the higher we set the bar, 
hopefully one that just generally ups the state of the industry at large. But we're also putting it out there as a message to our competitors that says, look, we're going to set the bar really, really high. So if you want to come compete with us in this, you're going to have to take similar measures if you want to be the best at what you're doing. I'm of the opinion that Coinbase is the most important company in this space. And it's really cool to hear about the innovations that are happening. I'm excited about the inflow of institutional capital that you guys are allowing in. Let's talk a little bit about the service layer on top of Coinbase custody and what kind of value added services. In the past, we've spoken a little bit about the possibility of staking as a service, insurance, airdrops, masternodes, you know, you spoke to loans. What are the range of services that are available to people custodying funds with you? Great question. Right now, it is just the secure storage of crypto assets. So right now, Coinbase custody is, is sort of going to market as cold storage as a service. Coinbase's own take on cold storage, of course. And so you can deposit and withdraw crypto assets. And, and that's actually it. But that's because, again, the space is so nascent and the custody offerings are so new. We'll obviously layer on much more over time. As we look to the, the near term, maybe I'll talk about services just in terms of our roadmap. Certainly over the next six months, what we think is most important is asset diversity. So just adding assets to the platform. Coinbase is sort of beating this drum loudly that we need to be adding assets across all of our products. But in particular, we're hoping custody can lead the charge in a bunch of ways. The second important feature for us, I think, and this is more of a later 2018 item, but liquidity. Right now, getting assets out of cold storage is purposefully long, arduous, and manual. We need ways for clients to get access to some amount of their funds more quickly. So you can imagine clients having a dashboard where they can dynamically manage their cold and hot funds with Coinbase custody. So they might you know, have 90% cold, but leave 10% hot so that if there is some adverse market movement, something happens, they have some funds available at least to react to that more quickly. Beyond that, we are really excited about some of the other products you mentioned or services you mentioned. And I think far and away, the one we're most excited about is staking as a service. Ultimately, it doesn't make a lot of sense for some entity who has large holdings of any asset to just lock them up in a vault and, and sort of, you know, throw away the key for 10 years in the future and to pay for that service, right? Which really is what crypto custody is today. It's expensive because cold storage is still a tough problem. And there's no other revenue streams available to groups like Coinbase custody. All we can really do is charge you to store your assets. So I think entities will, by necessity, look for ways to monetize their assets. And the most obvious one that seems to be on our horizon is staking. Staking as a service, us Coinbase Custody building out the trusted infrastructure to facilitate that and facilitate it in a way where our clients have complete peace of mind that their assets are safe and they're earning a good return on those relative to whatever amount of risk they're taking. That's going to be one of the ways that custody offerings differentiate themselves over the next couple of years. And I think the groups that are able to get that right, both for themselves and for their clients, are, are really going to be the big winners. The other product you mentioned is crypto loan. And this is obviously a huge need right now in the marketplace. Lots of folks want to short not just Bitcoin, but other crypto assets. And there's really no readily available ways to do this. Genesis is, I think, doing some cool things from what I've heard, allowing some clients to short Bitcoin. I haven't really heard of much else in the marketplace around this. And I think there's two problems. One, where are you sourcing your liquidity from? So where's the actual Bitcoin that you're loaning out to someone to short coming from? Are you having to buy that? Or are you a, a large custodian that can source that from your customers? If that's coming from your customers, how are you giving them confidence that their Bitcoin is not going to be lost? That's a real problem. 
And also what's the regulatory structure under which you're doing this? There's obviously a lot of risk with loaning these assets out. So how are you managing that? These are things that have been handled for a very long time under the broker-dealer regime. Securities loan is a huge part of the Finance 1.0 custodian world, and we're hoping to take some cues from that to be able to roll that out in the future. Both of these products, whether implemented independently or together or you know maybe one early 2019, one later 2019, doesn't really matter. What they do is they bring in more revenue for Coinbase custody. Ultimately, these assets are our customers. They belong to our customers. So most of that revenue will be due to them parking large assets, large holdings with us. So we will share that revenue back with them in such a way where it will overall drive down the fees that we charge to just store things in cold storage because additional revenue is is available and hopefully actually make a real return for them. So there will be proper incentive to say, yeah, I'm comfortable with whatever risk might exist with me loaning out my Bitcoin because the return is is appropriate for that risk. Does Coinbase have a stated position on like fractional reserve banking? I imagine that there's a lot of creative things you could do with people's Bitcoin down the road. A lot of banks only have like one-tenth of, you know, sort of their stated assets under management. I don't even know if that's the right term, but available to customers. What are your thoughts on fractional reserve banking, or is that just so far out into the future that a mature stance hasn't really been developed? I think it's probably too far out in the future for a mature stance to have been developed what I can say is I think typical third-party custody, let's take Coinbase.com, so Coinbase's retail offering, I think that probably cannot be fractional reserve. That sort of defeats the purpose. Coinbase is a, a third-party to securely store your private keys, and it's an easy you know, fiat to crypto on-ramp. We're sort of defeating a lot of the original purpose, I think, if we take that away. So I don't believe Coinbase has a stated view, but I, I don't think that's probably in the cards for our retail offering. For our institutional offerings, I don't think we'll ever go as far as, as being a bank. What I can say is that, again, the SEC, FINRA, through the broker-dealer, their broker-dealer regulations have really well-defined frameworks for how to think about loaning out assets, margin collateral, things like that, and, and what are the appropriate amounts of collateral that you need to put aside to achieve you know, certain loans and, and ratios and things like that. So in the near term, if our institutional businesses are to pursue something or are to pursue products along those lines, I think we'll just follow the lead from traditional finance and leverage what's already available in the the broker-dealer world. How about dirty money and fungibility? I've heard stories of people trying to move money into Coinbase that they acquired in honest ways, but being blocked. What kind of checks do you have in place on Bitcoin coming in that may have, you know, gone through mixers or been involved in underground markets and, you know, darknet markets and stuff? What are your policies there? I can't get into all the nitty gritty of how we go back and, and look through past transactions and things like that. We actually consider a lot of that to be intellectual property, and we're pretty proud of the practices we've developed. But what I can say is we are looking from an AML perspective at all funds that come into Coinbase, both on the retail side and, and the institutional side. And we might have various levels of, obviously, there's different levels of suitability for the different types of clients. But I think even on an AML perspective, we might have different levels of what's acceptable. Broadly, if that Bitcoin, you can assume if that Bitcoin were acquired illegally, has ostensibly gone through some sort of dark market, our dark web was involved in something like Mt. Gox, we're probably going to take issue with it and likely are going to ask you to move that back off of the platform. Can't speak, you know, in all cases, I think, but in broad strokes, you should roughly assume that's the case. I am personally at least anxiously looking towards a day where we have more clarity on the fungibility of these assets. I think 
it's a hundred percent of all dollar bills or hundred dollar bills. Maybe I'm sure have been involved in some illicit activity and it's just a function of a immutable ledger that we're actually able to go back and look at Bitcoin throughout its lifespan. Whereas we can't do that with us dollars. So I don't think it makes sense for the current state of that to play out into the future. But again, we want to be the most trusted and to be the most compliant. So right now we're, we're setting a high bar for that. What about with regards to, you know, the government coming in and asking funds to be seized or government reporting? I imagine you guys have spent a lot of time thinking through these issues. What are your approaches to government requests for information and seizure of funds? Coinbase is always going to act in the best interest of its clients. And I think we've sort of set a good precedent for this already with regards to the IRS coming in and asking for information on a lot of our clients. We push back on that and we feel like we got to a pretty good spot with the IRS in terms of what data we, we ultimately had to hand over previously. At the end of the day, we are a U.S. business operating under U.S. regulations. If the U.S. government were to show up at our doorstep and ask to seize funds or I think less likely to seize funds, but maybe to not let funds move off the platform, we would obviously comply with that. I do appreciate that when Coinbase did report to the IRS that it informed specific individuals whose information had been reported that the information was reported. It wasn't just given off without any status update. So that was, I think, a good way to approach it. And I think I feel like to the extent that it can act in the spirit of this whole cryptoverse that Coinbase has tried, (laughs) but there are obviously limits and laws and stuff. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's, I think this is something that's going to play out over time in practice, much more so than in theory, what any one company says they're going to do, right? Everyone's going to build up a reputation of how they respond under particular instances. And hopefully that's how the market judges them. We know we still have work to do in a number of areas, but I think that we hope to be judged by our future actions more so than than any one policy we might put out. I'd like to dig into maybe some of the lesser talked about aspects of custodianship. Do you anticipate finding yourself privy to information that maybe others wouldn't have access to, like certain funds, buying big allotments of coins, or getting information on what the index fund is about to add next? What are some other sensitivities related to custody that the average person might not consider? Yeah, certainly. And I think this is true of most custodians and prime brokers, right? Before one of your clients is going to launch a new product or trading strategy, they need to work out with you how they're going to do that. So very naturally, you have to be in the loop on that. I think you hit the main ones, right? Hey, we would like to add this asset. Obviously, okay, we just purchased a lot of one asset. We now need to move it over. We did move it over. And obviously, we see that sort of register on the platform. And then I think broadly, we have very, we try to think of ourselves as a partner, not as a vendor to our clients. And so we want to have open dialogue with them about what their current and future needs are, as well as really so we can match up what our current and future roadmap is to make sure we're meeting their needs and they're not having to go look for someone else to custody their assets. In the course of those conversations, you tend to get a sense of how folks are thinking and looking at the world right now and what they're going to be thinking about and needing in the future. We have really strict rules around, well, just around how we treat that information. I think like, this is not something new, right? We had the, the same problem at Apex. I would talk to Betterment and then I would fly across the country and talk to Wealthfront. So there's really good ways to handle this. But in particular at Coinbase, what we're doing right now is we're working as quickly as we can to segregate all of our institutional businesses and put up the right Chinese walls between them so that there's no improper information sharing. One of the, I think, a concern that I get a lot is 
hey, you work with Ruben, who runs Coinbase Asset Management. In fact, you had asked us to come on together. Normally, we would love to do something together. But the realities of our business is we, we really should not be interacting that much because we don't want to accidentally share some information that we shouldn't. And so that's just the reality of business right now. How do you think about adding new assets like for Coinbase, for the consumer product? We're talking about fiat on-ramps and we're talking about customers. But when it comes to regulated funds and institutions that for whatever reason are, are looking to maybe custody something that may or may not be a security, like that's okay with you. They're regulated. They're making their own decisions. Is it purely based on your ability to securely custody the funds and customer demand, or are there other considerations coming into play similar to those employed by like GDAX? It's a good question. And I can't comment on any asset in particular. You didn't ask me about any, but broadly our public digital asset framework still does apply to all assets that we're going to add to any of our products. That being said, you hit on sort of the some of the obvious issues at play. Suitability for Coinbase.com is very different than suitability for Coinbase custody that's only custodying for sophisticated financial institutions holding funds for accredited investors, for example, right? Those just should not be the same bar. Similarly, we don't offer buy-sell through Coinbase custody. It's just the secure storage of these assets. So our bar from a technology perspective is also different. It doesn't necessarily mean it's lower. It just means it's, it's sort of different in how we think about these assets. But certainly, we still have we still have the digital asset framework. We still want to run everything through that because we want to have a public opinion on, is this asset distributed? How is the team? How were funds raised? Is it a security or not? That's actually, we have to treat it internally a little differently in terms of, you know, how we're going to report things and deal with it, even though we're, it's the same sort of security and ultimately the end reporting to the client's going to be the same. So all those things are important and we still have to, well, we think the right thing to do is to work through that framework in all cases. I imagine you can't answer, but I got to ask, as a side note here, Ethereum Classic, can we discuss Ethereum Classic or is this totally not something we could discuss? I think all of our official communications from that will come from Twitter and our blog. Okay. All right. That's fine. I will tell you, I, I'm excited to add Ethereum Classic to Coinbase Custody. A lot of index funds, Grayscale has a large Ethereum Classic holding. That opens up more of the market to us. Generally, I'm going to be excited to add almost any asset because I think that just broadens the amount of the market that Coinbase Custody can serve. Ethereum Classic in particular, I think, brings some cool clients to the platform. I was at Consensus Invest, and it was really interesting how many people at that event had Zcash and Ethereum Classic. In fact, at one point, a speaker asked people how many people here, you know, hold Ethereum and, and almost everyone raised their hand. And then the speaker said, okay, keep your hand raised. If by Ethereum, you meant Ethereum Classic and almost everyone kept their hands up. And I think that really speaks to the advocacy of Barry Silbert and Grayscale's Ethereum Classic Trust and, and all that, that they've really done a good job of like proselytizing that to institutional investors. So. Maybe that has some, you know, something to do, but everyone can speculate. We'll, we'll all wait for the official <laughs> communication, but certainly Zcash and Ethereum Classic have done a really good job with penetration among institutional investors. Is there another question I should be asking about custody that I haven't touched on or that we touched on briefly, but maybe should do a deeper dive on? There's two really insurance. And then by extension, why do folks continue to say custody is sort of the gating factor to institutional money coming in. And I think part of that is brand and balance sheet, which 
I think folks sort of expect someone like BitGo or Coinbase Custody or Kingdom Trust to have insurance. If you are State Street, you have a trillion dollars on your balance sheet. You know, there's the greatest insurance policy that you're ever going to have, although maybe not if you're Lehman Brothers, right? But there is an expectation of sort of backstop there. And the second, I think, is segregation, which is how is Coinbase Custody remote from the other Coinbase businesses and how is it protecting its clients' assets from any risks that might cross over from those businesses? So, Sam, let's talk about insurance for a second. One of the reasons why I personally started off with Coinbase in this space was I saw that the funds were insured. And I remember back in the day, Zappo actually had insurance. And then they eventually rolled rolled it back. And there was one other player in this space, I forgot who, that had insured funds that eventually dropped their insurance. Can you speak to the history of insurance in the space and the role that that plays in solving the custody problem? There's been a really colored history of insurance action in the space. I think you sort of nailed it. Actually, I was on a, a panel with Ted, the president of Zappo at Consensus a couple weeks ago, and he he had a really fun anecdote about how they had this thesis on insurance, and they actually spent a bunch of time building out, ultimately self-investing to self-insure, and ultimately they don't feel like it's been super beneficial to their business in terms of winning new clients. And I feel similarly, in a lot of the conversations we have in the marketplace, we get asked constantly, do you have insurance? The answer is yes. And we sort of check a box and move forward. There's not much more digging in there. And the reality is, if you think of the craziness that's going to have to happen for an insurance claim to pay out in the digital asset or the crypto asset space, I can't even imagine it, right? But there's so many different angles to think about. Is it theft? Is it cyber theft? Is it physical theft? Was it loss? Was it damage? Was it insider theft? All of those risks are typically written under different policies in more mature businesses. And in our business, you have to sort of bundle all those together. So it makes, I think it makes the reality of a claim very challenging. But what's interesting is most folks seem to just want to know that there is insurance and they don't dive deeper. So I I will echo a lot of what Ted said about how Zappo is thinking about insurance and how others are, which is Coinbase custody is covered under Coinbase's global insurance policy. And there are some details about that on our website. If you want to read about it, we get to go to market with that. I think that that allows us to check the box if and when the market demands something more specific or maybe even more broad or larger, then we'll, we'll react to that. And we're actually, you know, constantly in communications with the various underwriters and folks that might be able to help us there. It has been eye opening to sort of see that it does feel more like a marketing or almost a client acquisition need. Maybe that's almost where the cost should be allocated because that's what you need to get folks in the door. So not a lot of follow-up questions when you say you you have insurance. Like, There's not. And, I, and the reality is like, I think that question goes away. I don't think anyone asks State Street, for example, if they launch a crypto custody offering or Fidelity, for example. I don't think they get asked if they have insurance. And it's because their balance sheets are so big, folks believe that there is a implied backstop to any losses that will come first from those groups' balance sheet and then, if needed, you know, potentially from the Fed, depending on who it is that's actually, which institution you're actually working with. That's a fascinating conversation. I'll, I'll have to dig into the terms of service or the, the specifics around it. And you mentioned Ruben. I first approached you and Ruben about doing a, a joint interview, and then I got a note from Ruben saying that shouldn't happen. And at first I, I was like, did I do something wrong? You know, was, was I approaching this the wrong way? Is the copyright, you know, all that stuff. But it turns out that this is being done to preserve the balance of power there or, you know, the 
separation of different businesses. Can you speak to how Coinbase thinks about its different business units and the function that that serves? Yeah, so there's really two dimensions across which we're going to think about this. And the first we've sort of been talking about and I think played out and with Ruben and I not being together on the podcast, which is we want to be really respectful of our clients, of the fact that we're probably privy to non-public information with regards to their products, their businesses, et cetera. And it's just the more that we're separate, both logically and physically, the less opportunity there will be for something to happen there. So as a good example, Ruben and I don't even sit next to each other. We, we sat next to each other the first couple of weeks when I joined Coinbase because we thought that would be helpful in terms of spinning up. What we quickly realized was that I could be on the phone with one of Ruben's competitors and with no intention to share information with him, but he, he might overhear something that's inappropriate. And so first step is just physically, we need to sort of separate out. And luckily, we're, we're expanding office space pretty rapidly here in San Francisco, so we're able to do that. And a lot of our institutional businesses, too, will we'll spin up out of New York and Chicago. So there will be more physical separation there. But the second and, and maybe the more important one, at least in my view from a custody perspective, is separation of risk. I think that investors in crypto hedge funds are paying to take on certain risks. And ultimately, where their, their assets get stored, there can be risks that are introduced there that are not obvious. So if Coinbase.com, for example, were to get hacked, there should not be crossover risk from that hack to Coinbase custody, right? Similarly, if GDAX now, Coinbase Pro and Coinbase Prime has some sort of event, let's say it's, it's not a hack, but maybe there is a, a night style trading error where, you know, we incur hundreds of millions of losses and those businesses are going to be going under, that risk also shouldn't carry over to Coinbase custody and tie up custody customers' assets. So, we also separate these businesses as separate entities so that we are completely sec- I mean, Coinbase custody exists only to safe keep our customers' assets right now. There is no other business activity happening within that business unit. It is completely separate from Prime, Pro, Coinbase.com, et cetera, specifically because we don't want any of those risks to carry over and we want our customers to know, hey, the, ultimately the, the risk that they're taking is just the risk of securely storing crypto assets. And, and hopefully we do that in a really best of class way. So there's no risk of assets stored with you to, you know, cover losses in other parts of the business or a GDAX hack. That makes a lot of sense. To provide people with a specific example, like I'm sitting here trying to imagine a scenario where you would be talking to a customer and Ruben would overhear something that would present a conflict of interest. Can you share like what kind of scenario might generate that kind of conflict? I just, I can't even imagine. I'm probably just not being very imaginative, but what's an example? Maybe something so absurd that it wouldn't speak to a real situation. Well, I think the simplest and most direct is we're constantly asked about our roadmap and timing to add new assets. And in some cases, once we're, we can't be much more specific than I was earlier, but we broadly know and can characterize how Coinbase Custody is going to approach adding assets. We have an internal metric, which is we want to custody 99% of the crypto market cap. I don't know exactly when we're going to get there. And I certainly don't know in what order we're going to get there. But when clients ask about an asset, I can sort of, you know, characterize, okay, well, here are the things that we have to think about for that, right? And we talked through through some of these earlier. If Ruben were to be sitting next to me, for example, or in the next conference room over, and let's say our, our walls were a little too thin, you know, he might be able to surmise, okay, well, Sam was talking to so-and-so today, and he was talking about Ripple, to use the, the famous, you know, Coinbase example that always comes up. You know, that might hit, give him some insight that 
either custody is about to add Ripple or that some of his competitors are going to add Ripple to their funds. And he needs to get ahead of that in a way that he wouldn't otherwise be able to if he didn't hear that. I'm sure there are more direct examples that, that I also can't think of right now. But even indirect, you know, we don't even want that possibility to be feasible, right? And so the more we can just separate ourselves so that like I myself, yeah, we, we have enough going on across our business. If I have to sort of be looking over my shoulder every time I'm on a conversation to know who's around me and what I can and cannot say, that's just too much to worry about. So I think the more separation you provide logically and physically, the easier it is to not slip up. So conceivably, Coinbase Custody could have a customer that's an index fund that's potentially competitive with the Coinbase index product. And that's something that you wouldn't want to share because you're separate business units and the interests of your customers come before the interests of the index fund, you know, for example. Absolutely. You ready to head into the second part of this? I am. So, This concludes part one of this fascinating conversation with Sam McInville from Coinbase Custody. Part two is almost as long as today's episode and just as good. I look forward to sharing it with you. See you next week. That's it for this week. To sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter, listen to other episodes, or get the show notes from this episode, please visit flippening.com. I also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast, Nomics, spelled N-O-M-I-C-S, at nomics.com. Finally, if you got value from the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next week.